It is, uh, it's Veterans Day, um, and I'll mention it a little bit more during the benediction, but we do want to honor and thank those who've uh, served and, and uh, gone to um, difficult places and gone through different difficult things. It's, uh, it's a major sacrifice, and we do appreciate it. Uh, we are in a series right now called um, The Rich Harvest. It's a uh, harvest time. Uh, and so, I mean, well, no one harvests anymore because we have agribusiness. But if we did, this would be the time when harvesting took place. And uh, we are celebrating Thanksgiving. We have our Thanksgiving uh, feast tonight. Um, and so to do it, we're, we're looking uh, at the, the parables of Jesus. And so um, we're looking at the parables where he's really talking about agricultural stuff, harvest stuff. Um, and seeing... Uh, how those uh, sort of work, and, and, and then what they, what they have for us now, especially given the fact that um, our church is in kind of like a space, like a, a sort of a spiritual space of looking to really be a part of the harvesting of God's fruit, right? We, as, as a church, we're really looking to be a place that's gathering in uh, people who don't know Jesus or who know him a little bit but really don't know a lot and want to get deeper and, and, and know him more. And as we're being a part of this, as we're looking to be a part of this harvest, these parables specifically speak to that sort of mentality. And so last week, one of the things we found is that uh, when, when churches and, and Christians really start to look outwards, uh, we find that, that God starts gathering in people, and, and a lot of us can start to be really jealous about the way that God blesses and gives good things to people that we don't think deserve it. Uh, and that was uh, last week. And, and, and one of the things we have to be on guard against is having this sense that like, oh, I'm being left out because God's giving this incredible grace to so-and-so. This week, um, I would like to, us to think about how we can avoid being at that place where 10 years from now, we look back at, at this moment in our, in our personal lives, in our church life, our spiritual life, where we're looking forward, looking forward to being a part of the harvest. We want to make it so that 10 years, we don't look back and go, oh no, what happened? How did we screw that up so badly? Um, the question I would like to have bouncing around uh, in your head uh, today is, uh, is that question, how do we start? Right, we got these great intentions, this great desire to see God's will done to to do, and then we end up doing something that is opposing God. We've all seen this in our lives. We've seen ministries, we've seen people that we've you know loved and we've been a part of, and and everything's great and it's awesome. And then somewhere along the line, things go off track, and we get to a point where we're looking back and being like, "What happened there?" Now, what what started out as something awesome is now actually opposing God. It doesn't have to be church. It can actually be just uh, in, in your own life. Like uh, you start out and you're like, you know, we're, my, my relationship, you know, my relationship with my spouse. I really want to see it in a good, healthy place. And 10 years later, you look back and like, what happens? We had all the right intentions and something got messed up. In business, where you say, I'm going to have this, I really want to be, have a career that's ethical and it's God-centered and it's going to bless people. And then 10 years later, you look back at the person who said that and, and they've either gotten too big for their britches or they've forgotten who they were or something has gone wrong. I suggest that uh, this parable uh, of Jesus starts to get at some of that. Amongst other things. Uh, I'm, I'm, I didn't do a translation this week. The New King James is, 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 Totally sufficient here. Um, but th- this is uh, Matthew 21, 33 to 45. I think 521 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to read along there or on the back of your note sheets. Jesus says this, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. 
he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when harvest vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants. They beat one, they killed one, and stoned another. He sent other servants, more than the first. They did the same thing to them. Then last of all, he sent a son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is his heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to those vine dressers? They, this is um, the, uh, the, the religious elites, they, they say to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests, the religious elites, the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Just a quick reminder, um, the very beginning here, uh, uh, here another parable. We said last week, and I want to keep hammering this home, a parable is, really it's kind of an allegory. All right? An allegory is like, um, sort of, uh, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, and you're, you're Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, or you're watching the movie, and you see the lion Aslan, you can always replace Aslan with King Jesus. It's an allegory. Okay? Um, parables are allegories. They, they actually refer to real historical people and places. But they're more than allegories. And this is the first thing in your note sheets. They also have a general kingdom principle. That's uh, from last week. Don't want to spend too much on time on it. But it is important because it helps us understand how parables work. So um, what we're doing, we're reading parables then, is we're unwinding the allegory. What is it that Jesus is actually talking about in his story? And then can we look at that and then generate a, a kingdom principle that he's trying to teach us from that story? So going back uh, to this text... Hint, hint, we said last week, whenever we hear vineyard uh, in Jesus' parables, and, and really in Scripture in general, uh, especially in the Old Testament prophets, vineyard almost always means Israel. Um, whenever God talks about his special vineyard, he's talking about his land, Israel, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And notice uh, this interesting detail that's brought out, right? Uh, the, the landowner, before he does anything else, he buys the land and then he, he sets up a vineyard and he puts a hedge around it. This is a stone wall. He digs a wine press in it. Uh, he builds a tower. And then he leases it. Interesting detail. Why is that there? What's the point? Why bother adding that little bit at the beginning? Well, the, uh, the oldest vineyard, oldest continuously working vineyard in the world that we know about for sure uh, is, is this one back here. It's uh, the Schloss Boldar in the Rhineland in uh, Germany. It's been around since we know for certain one, uh, the year 1096, and it's been in more or less continuous production since then. Um, 
If you, if you can see in the picture in the, the top right, you can see at the back of the, the castle, there's a wall, right? And, and the layout of this vineyard is more or less unchanged for a thousand years, almost. Uh, they've obviously rebuilt and things have burned down and stuff, but the layout is pretty much the same. We, we actually, we have all of the, the, uh, the details and the records to, to, to show this. Um, there's a wall in the back, and that's because, unlike uh, in today's California wineries, where they're not worried about people rampaging in and stealing their grapes, in the ancient world, uh, a vineyard was a really big, ca- a huge cash crop. And it was, a, uh, it was a, something that people liked to steal from other people. And so in order to protect your investment, you got to have a, uh, an awesome wall. Likewise, grapes, uh, I think some animals, like foxes maybe, they like grapes, so you got to keep them out, so you got to have a wall. Um, you'll notice they don't have a vine press, a wine press that we can see here, because nowadays, um, grapes are usually pressed elsewhere. But in the ancient world, um, you didn't want to have to take your grapes too far. And so right next to your fields, you would, um, build in, like, a big pit. And the way that ancient people would make their wine is that, uh, they would jump in with all the grapes and they would stomp on their grapes. Um, and with, (laughs) with their dirty, muddy feet. And so the, the wine probably is very earthy. Uh, flavor to it when it was done. <laughs> uh, also, you'll notice there's a tower there. Uh, that's because, like I said, having a wine uh, vineyard was dangerous. People were always trying to steal. And so you needed to look out somebody who could protect your lands. Um, that was actually part of uh, being having a good working vineyard, was having being able to protect it. Uh, not only that, but uh, when you're working and you're out there in the, the fields day in, day out, it gets real hot, and the tower was usually like a covered area, a shady area, kind of high up where the breeze hits you, so you can kind of get out of the muck and the mud. What, Je- what Jesus is, is, is communicating in this section is he's saying, not only did God give Israel a vineyard, Okay, he didn't, he didn't just give the people of Israel this incredible, like, this land, right? He actually made it an amazing land, a beautiful land, perfect, totally ready to go. Uh, you may remember uh, from the Old Testament, the land of milk and honey. The, the Jews, the Hebrew people were going to roll into Israel. It was all going to be set up for them. It was going to be butter and honey and wondrous. It was going to be fruitful. It was all ready for them, set up for them, prepared for them. They didn't really have to lift a finger. To get what they needed to be, I mean, and now, you know, that land, Israel, Palestine, is a, it's a fertile land. It's naturally defensible, um, with the ocean on, on the west. There's mountains to the north and the east to, as natural barriers and defenses. It's a perfect place to live out God's plans and God's ways. This is the first thing you're note sheets. The owner, God, makes the vineyard Israel an ideal place to make wine. And wine there, making wine being a, a metaphor for doing God's will, proselytizing new people, um, living according to his, the spirit of his laws, like all that stuff. Well, what happens? Nothing good. Oh, this is where the, the, this is where the story gets weird. Um, so the vine dressers, the, the vinters, the tenants, they, uh, they're doing their thing, and then, like, I guess three servants at a time, or maybe in short succession, they come to sort of pick, take their piece, right, to get, like, the, you know, whatever the percentage that the owner is going to get. And uh, first they beat a guy. I'm assuming they beat one and send him back, being like, don't send any more. You know what will happen. And I think what's going on is the, the owner sends a second, 
That one they kill. The third they stone. And the reason uh, bringing out stoning, uh, the reason that, that Jesus brings this out is to give us a little hint about what he's talking about. Um, I think I have a picture here of uh, Jeremiah. Yes. Uh, you can see at the top, the top there, that this is a uh, Greek Orthodox icon. Uh, Martyrion, Hagion, Prophete, Yeremion. That's a uh, martyr and holy prophet Jeremiah. You'll notice what's happening to holy prophet Jeremiah is that he is being stoned to death. We have um, a text probably from about the first century. Uh, it's called The Lives of the Prophets, and it details that how it is that the lives of the Old Testament prophets ended. And in almost every example, they end in martyrdom. Almost all of the Old Testament prophets get killed. Uh, if you're wondering what a prophet is, a prophet is like an ancient consultant. So if you have a you know, business, and you're wondering how to make your business better, uh, you would hire a consultant. The consultant comes in, he's looking at your business, he's seeing your, your, your layout, your plans, all the things that you're doing. And then at the end of his time consulting, he'll be like, here's what you need to do to improve. Okay? Your business is failing here, 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 and here. And uh, if you just tweak this and fire those guys and get rid of her and then rehire over here, then I think you can start making a profit. Likewise, um, in ancient Israel, God uh, sends consultants to the, the elites of Israel, the uh, religious elites, and explains to them what they're doing wrong, why Israel is such a mess. And so people like Jeremiah would come up to the king and be like, hey, you know how everything's falling apart? Guess what? It's your fault. You need, everybody, we need to get rid of this king. Kings don't like being told that they should be deposed. And kings tend to have a monopoly on the power of violence. And so these consultants, unlike modern consultants, were typically murdered for their trouble. When Jesus uh, says the servants are beat um, and killed and stoned, what's, uh, if you're there listening, you're hearing, uh, because these, these stories about the lives of the prophets were very, very common. Universally known, in fact, many places in the New Testament seem to draw on this text to talk about what people thought happened to the prophets in tradition. They hear stones. They think Jeremiah sitting there getting beat down after, this is after he's been beat many times. The consultants have not been listened to. That's the next thing in your note sheets. Time after time, the vine dressers, that's Israel's elites, murdered. God's servants, the prophets. And of course, once we hear this, then we're probably attuned to what's going to happen next. And that is we hear the owner, about the owner's son. Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. And especially for Christians, we hear son and we immediately think of Jesus, the beloved son. And that's right. That's correct. This probably would have been ambiguous or oblique to those who are listening right then and there. But we who've been following in the gospel know that Jesus was, in his baptism, uh, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We hear son, we think Jesus. So 
So tell me, religious elites, what's going to happen when the master, the owner, hears that his son has been killed? Well, the ones who did it, he will wipe out. And he's going to hand the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. It's kind of a strange story. It's a strange parable because you have to wonder, like, what, what are these guys thinking? This is the ancient world, okay? You don't get, you don't get due process. Like, long before the sun comes along, at any time, the owner could, like, petition the local magistrate and have all these guys just wiped out. So it's kind of bizarre that he would even, you know, go to this extent. That he would even, like, you know, have the sun uh, come, right? And, and, then, and then once it happens, once that happens, the, there's this sense of, like, okay, well, now what? If, if, if they, is, is God's plan wrecked? Like, what, what, what are we going to do then? And the religious elites themselves understand what is going to happen. They're, they tell them. They're like, well, they're, we're going to be— our. The, the, the killers are going to be replaced, and, and somebody uh, more competent is going to be hired up. For us li- listening back, this is clearly the church. This is the next thing you know sheets. Um, finally, the vine dressers, Israel's elites, murder the owner's son, Jesus. So the owner, God, goes looking for new tenants, and that's faithful Israel, the church. I say faithful Israel because um, there are some people who will use this text to um, support anti-Semitism. Uh, in fact, in the history of the church, uh, there has been many uh, Christians who have um, justified pogroms and, um, and violence against uh, the Jewish people because they think that this text is condem- condemning um, all of Israel. I just want to say that that's not the case. Uh, that's why I keep saying Israel's elites. It's the religious elites that are the problem here. It's not just regular, normal Jewish Hebrew people. It's the people at the top who are leading them astray. When the prophets come, they don't go talk to normal, regular folks. They go and talk to elites and say, you're the problem. Uh, the problem is, is so the, the solution then is that a faithful remnant of Israel, what we now call the church, is going to, is going to take over working the vineyards for God. Now, interactive portion of the sermon. It's a weird parable. It's a weird story. What is the most obscene or absurd part of this parable? Interactive, you can raise your hand, you can shout it out. What, if you're, if you're, you're just listening, what's the most absurd thing that has happened so far? Anybody? Kill, kill the, they killed the son, right? Yeah, right. Like, they killed the son. Like, what, what, you idiots, come on. They killed the son. I think there's something a little more obscene than that. I'm sorry? Oh, that they think they're going to, yeah, that's right. Well, I think what they're trying to do is they figure if we murder everybody, we'll sort of, there'll be no one else to own it. It'll be ours. But yeah, that's crazy, right? I, even crazier. There it is. What kind of father is this guy? What kind of sick, crazy dad does that? Yeah. <laughs> what were you expecting? Like, I mean, if you're, if you're slamming your head against a post, 
And then you stop for a while and you're like, I wonder what's going to happen if I slam my head against this post again. I, you, you might want to stop and be like, uh, are you, are you insane? Like, they, they took out all of your servants that you already have every right to wipe them out. Now you'd be like, hey, 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 Billy, I want you to get in there. Maybe see if you can reason with these guys. That is a really, really weird, weird way to act. It's where actually the parable breaks down. It's where it completely stops making sense. It's where the actual story that it's kind of telling is too, it's too crazy. It's too wild to, to even function in like, in like a parable. The parable explodes. Your brain blows up. What's going on? What kind of owner would treat tenants like that? Only an owner who loved them so much that he would do anything to convince them to change. For some random reason, this owner has some kind of connection, some desire, some commitment, some, some crazy fixation on these vine dressers, desiring them to change their ways, to become the kinds of people he wants them to be. And he's willing to even give up his son to make it happen. It's, uh, like I said, this um, text has been used um, to justify anti-Semitism and violence against uh, the Jewish people. And, and precisely because if we are reading this, we'd like to read ourselves as, you know, the people who come in after they've screwed up to do things right. After they've been wiped out. And maybe we could even, um, you know, help out with the wiping out. That's uh, how anti-Semitism gets used here. But that, the, the problem with that, the problem with that mentality is it completely misses, um, the issue that God has here with, with the, 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 the tenants. It's not that, it's not that he doesn't love them. It's not that he doesn't want them. Uh, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. He's so desperate for their obedience, so desperate for their repentance. He's willing to do anything at the a full extent of what he's able to do up to and including the cross. And the other mistake we make is we think, oh, well, uh, if we're reading this, this parable, parable, um, he's, uh, the, the, God's sending his son to fix just, um, just, just the, the, the tenants, the, the, the guys, you know, living in Israel, the elites. That's who the son is sent to fix. But the reality is the son is sent to fix everybody. If you think, I mean, if we start to think, oh, we're so much better than those guys with their crazy, Vinter vine dressers, they're idiots. We would never be like that. We're good folks. When the religious elites were killing the prophets, when they were executing Jesus, they thought they were doing a really good thing. They were on God's side in their own minds. And notice that it wasn't uh, Jewish people who nailed Jesus to a cross. It was the Roman government. It was Gentiles. It was people like us. God didn't send his son just to fix Israel. He sent his son to fix the whole world through Israel. He sent his son to fix you and me. There may be somebody here who... um, 
If you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're honest today, you recognize that you are, that it could have been you. You could have been the one holding the nail and hammering it down and putting Jesus to death. That you have inside of yourself a darkness, a corruption, a blackness. That if you could, you would love to have uh, forgiveness. You would love to have change. You would love to be unbroken. You would love to be fixed. You would love to be put back together. The good news for you today is that when Jesus was on the cross, behind me, when you see Jesus on the cross, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that um, his side was pierced and blood and water flowed out of his side. That's a symbol in, in John's gospel that the divine life of Jesus, the, the, the Holy Spirit of, of God, was coming out into the world from him. In his death, he pours out life and light to the world. If you are a person here today and you are radically broken, or even just a little bit broken, you desire change, you desire revolution, you desire forgiveness, you desire transformation, simply by believing in the one who gave us life, you can have it. You, just like the religious elites that Jesus came to save, have an opportunity today to believe and to be transformed and to be given life eternal. Some of you here are here today and uh, you believed, you do have eternal life. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You are a child of God. And yet you've kind of been doing your own thing for a long time. I'm going to pray for you too. There's an opportunity here to say again, to say, Jesus, I want your life again. I want to live it again. Forgive me. I repent. I want to change. I want to go back to your ways, not my ways. The beginning, we said, how can we make sure that um, 10 years down the line, we don't look back and say, what happened? What, what got screwed up? I love uh, this piece of the text. It's so, it's profound. Notice what the owner does. Imagine, so you're, you're sitting there, you're looking through the classifieds, right? You're like, gosh, I would love to be working in a, in a vineyard. And, uh, you know, oh, look, um, this landowner has uh, purchased some land. He's going to lease it to some tenants. You're like, ooh, you're probably not thinking, I'm going to murder, like, everyone who works for him and his family, uh, to, to take over. That's probably not where your head's at. Your head is probably more like, oh, this sounds like a great opportunity. And so you go and you meet him and you look and wow, he set up the most amazing vineyard for you. I mean, this thing is pristine. It's cherry. All you got to do is just walk in and start doing what vineyard people do. Pick some grapes. Water some. Sit in the cool underneath the tower. It's just a sweet deal. You, and you're like, oh yeah, sign me up. I totally want to be here. And then, so the, the owner's like, all right, you're in. You're done. You too. You, you, yeah. You guys are all, hey, by the way, I'm out of here. Um, good luck. And he takes off to a far country. And so the first couple of days, you're like, boop, 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 boop. You're picking grapes, stomping on them, hopefully washing your feet. You know, you're looking out in the tower and nobody's here. Good. This is great. This is awesome. Like, where'd that guy go? Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen him for a while. Oh, well, this is a pretty nice deal we've got going here. Honestly, I hope we never see him again. Like, this, this is great. We've got all this land. We used to be peasants. Now we're like basically lords of our own castle. 
were making money hand over fist. Like, the, a month goes by, no word. Another month goes by, huh? Maybe even send a letter to him. Uh, landowner, are you coming back? Nothing. Radio silence. At a certain point, you're like, huh, this is our vineyard now. This is ours. And so you start to act like it's yours. You know, once you take possession of something, once you take ownership of it, you kind of make it yours. You do your own thing with it. You start to really enjoy the profits. You know, the money's coming in. You're using it to do the things that you want to do. And, and then after all, you know, a year goes by, and, and then out of nowhere, some guy walks up and he's like, where's my cut? Did you work this land? Did you sweat and bleed? Did you come up with the business plan that we've been executing? No, you haven't done anything. You show up out of nowhere, you want a cut of of our vineyard? You're lucky if you walk away with a beating and you tell anybody else who comes what they're going to get too. What happened to the religious elites of Israel is the same thing that happens to us today. God graciously gives us the keys to the kingdom. He welcomes us into his community. He says, I forgive you, I love you. And all I'm asking is for you to, uh, you know, make some grapes. Can you do that? And we do, yes, of course. Oh, God, I'm so excited. I'm going to make some grapes for you. And then over time, it starts to become ours. We stop, you know, hearing from him. We're wondering where, if he's coming back, if Jesus is going to return anytime soon. Maybe he's not. And so, so really what we start to do is we start to take these, these things that God has tasked us with and they make them for us. They become our kinds of projects and deals. It, it becomes mine. And it's not just your ministry, although it can be that. I, I know many people who, uh, you know, it begins like your ministry is for God, and at a certain point, your ministry becomes your identity. And, and God help the person who tries to take it from you or change it. It can also be, and really, I mean, speaking of guys here, I have this uh, friend from college. He, um, he uh, graduated, we graduated like 2003-ish, and uh, he went to work for this uh, magazine. And um, at the time, the magazine was so awesome. It was like, it was top-notch. He got, was making great money. Um, and then uh, 2008-ish hit, and the economy took a dive. And the CEO, the guy who ran the magazine, like, had built it from the ground up, had, had created it. It was his. It was his baby. And so all the people who are and working for the magazine are coming in being like, dude, we need to make some changes. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. He's like, you don't tell me what to do. This is mine. This is my magazine. I made this. And so all the people who were trying to be like, dude, you're going the wrong way, they send their resumes out. They go start working for other companies, my friend included. Within two years, the magazine has completely crashed. His board of directors has fired him, and then they get sold for pennies on the dollar to some mega corporation. All because this guy said, it's mine. He was a Christian, by the way. And he could not handle the thought that he would have to let go. 
This happens in our relationships too. Uh Oh, we're married, we're in a relationship. Why? So I can get happy. You're here to make me happy. That's your job. This relationship is mine. Newsflash. Your relationships that are given to you, whether they're marital, friendships, they are not given to you by God to make you happy, although they can. They are given to you by God so that you can create fruit that benefits his kingdom. So that you can empower the person that you're with to become more of the disciple that God wants them to be. So that you can train up your children to be kids that revere him. Nowhere in there. This, this, this relationship, it's not yours. This magazine, it's not yours. This business, it's not yours. This ministry is not yours. None of this is yours. And as soon as we start thinking that it's ours, we start going on that path. And it starts to be about serving our needs and not God's needs. It starts to be about getting grapes and wine for us and not grapes and wine for him. And ten years later, you look back and you say, oh my gosh, what happened? Brothers and sisters, I really believe that we are at like a, this, this cusp point where we're moving into a place of, of fresh fruit and fresh ministry at Coast Bible Church. I really believe, I know we've, we've, got, we've got a queue now, a queue, an actual queue for baptisms. I'm so excited about that, and we'll talk more about that in the future. People who want to publicly make a confession of faith uh, because they're proud of the God that they now serve, and, and, and that is exciting. We are coming to a place where we're building up kids. I mean, I've seen so much action amongst our youth where they're being changed and formed. There are a lot of things going, a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of excitement. And boy, I am so pumped to see the fruit that's going to come from this. But boy, am I also terrified that we as a community may begin to make it about ghost. About mine. To the point where instead of cultivating, we keep. It's the last thing in your note sheets. I think. Don't keep. Cultivate. None of this is ours. And all of it is going to be left behind when we're gone. Let's live accordingly. Pray with me. Father God, I just pray that we will be people um, who cultivate your kingdom and your crops. Never taking possession, never taking ownership, never falling into that trap of making it about us and our pride and our pleasure. Instead, God, remembering that it's all yours and always will be yours. God, I pray if there's somebody here um, who needs forgiveness, who needs to trust you and receive your life for the first time, God, I pray um, that they will pray with me. Lord God, forgive me. Jesus, I trust in you for life. I trust in you for forgiveness. Make me your child, God, in Jesus' name. For those who need to uh, repent and change course, God, I just pray that... um, We will. We'll we'll start walking according to your son and not according to our will. But mostly, God, I just ask for every person here in whatever capacity, wherever our grip is tightening on the things that you've blessed us with and graced us with and given us, the tasks and missions, that, that God, you you will break our grip, that you will open our hands so that we continue to receive and to give just as you have given and received freely and without Um, any ties.
We bless you, God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his wisdom. Bless this church and our harvest. In his name we pray, amen.